0: Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Andrew Pullen, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers based in Singapore. Today's episode is a recording of our webinar held in September, marking the award of the Christopher Bathurst Prize 2022. The prize is awarded each year in partnership with the Singapore Academy of Law and in memory of the late Christopher Bathurst QC, a former head of Chambers who, as a member of Fountain Court, developed a substantial practice in Southeast Asia, particularly Singapore, while also being a leading practitioner at the commercial bar in London. The Christopher Bathurst Prize is open to young Singaporean lawyers and law students, and the winner has the benefit of an all expenses paid two week internship at Fountain Court in London. 2022 was the 13th year we've run the competition. Entrants in this year's competition, were asked to submit a piece of written legal advice in the field of professional negligence. Taking inspiration from this topic, The theme of this year's webinar was Duty of Care and Professional Liability, an International Perspective. In a moment, you will hear our panel discuss recent developments in the law of professional negligence, including the circumstances in which a duty of care would be held to arise, the scope of the duty, causation and limitations to recoverable loss. Adopting a comparative law approach, the panel considered recent significant decisions in the Singaporean English courts, as well as the position under Australian and Indian law. Our panel consisted of my colleague, Lian Mulcahy KC of Fountain Court in London, Siraj Jomar SC, a Singapore senior counsel and a director at Drew and Napier, one of Singapore's leading law firms, Kanagadar SC, a Western Australian silt based at Quayside Chambers in Perth and a door tenant of Fountain Court, and Zal Andiyarajina, an Indian senior advocate based in Bombay and also a door tenant of Fountain Court. The webinar was moderated by Stephen Moriarty KC, a senior Fountain Court Silk and former head of chambers. I hope you enjoy the discussion, and I'll be back at the end to tell you who won this year's Christopher Bathurst Prize.
1: Welcome to the Christopher Bathurst webinar 2022. For a number of years now, we've been holding a seminar in conjunction with the Christopher Bathurst Essay Prize. The idea being that we set a problem on a particular area that raises questions about the way in which Singapore law may or may not differ from English law. And then we have a seminar that discusses the thing more generally. We've dealt with illegality, we've dealt with privilege, we dealt last year with oral modification clauses, and this year we're dealing with professional liability. The title of the seminar is Duty of Care and Professional Liability international perspective and i'm very pleased that we've got four very distinguished panelists from different jurisdictions to give us their views on a number of issues which we're going to discuss we've got from the home jurisdiction siraj omar senior council from singapore uh, director of uh, and napier we've got from england leanne mulcahy king's council from fountain court chambers we've got from australia Kanagadharmananda senior council from Keyside Chambers, Perth, and a door tenant at Fountain Court Chambers. And we've got, finally, from India, Zan Hirugina, senior advocate, who practises from Mumbai, and is also a door tenant at Fountain Court Chambers. And what we've decided to do for this seminar is to divide it into two sections, really. So the format is going to be that I'm going to ask each of our panellists, starting with Siraj, to give us a 10 or 15 minute overview about how their particular jurisdiction addresses the question of duties of care in a professional liability context. And then after that, we're going to have a more interactive discussion. It's possible that we'll be able to deal with questions and answers. There are two caveats, though. So first of all, it may be that we run out of time. I'm sorry about that if it happens. The second caveat, more important, is I'm not particularly adept at Q&A function on Zoom. Luckily, I'm glad to say I've got a chatbot next to me in the form of Andy Pullen, who hopefully can deal with the, uh, the Q&A questions. And so if if we have got time, I'm hoping we can put them to our distinguished panellists. So with that very short introduction, over to you and the care in Singapore, Siraj.
2: Thank you, Stephen. And, and thank you again to Funk Court and uh, SAL for the invitation to be part of this. Well, the, the position in, in Singapore has actually been relatively clear since 2007, and there's a Court of Appeal decision in Spandek Engineering and the Defense Science and Technology Agency, which everyone refers to here as Spandec, which sets out a unified single test for whether to impose a duty of care in a particular circumstance. Before spandek there was a whole range of tests that were applied. But in the period immediately before spandek that had been whittled down essentially two categories, and it depended on the type of loss that was being claimed. If one was dealing with pure economic loss, then uh, the courts applied a two-stage test, and and they asked whether there was a sufficient degree of proximity in the relationship between the claimant and the defendant to give rise to a duty of care, uh, and secondly, whether there were any policy factors that exclude or limit such a duty. Now, you might think that rings a bell, and that sounds quite familiar uh, from the House floor's decision in Anne's, but there was a court of appeal decision which expressly distanced this two-stage test from that set out in Anne's. Uh, they said it was a little more restrictive than the formulation of Lord Wilberforce. But that was the case for uh, pure economic loss. For all other types of loss, the test that was applied was the three-part in Caparro. Now, that all changed in 2007 in the Court of Appeals decision in Spandak And um, let me touch very briefly on the facts. The appellant was a contractor and had been awarded a contract by the Singapore government to redevelop a medical facility at an army camp. The respondent, DSTA, was the superintending officer under the contract. Uh, and was responsible, among other things, for certifying interim payments in respect of Spandex work. The question was whether or not DSTA, the respondent, owed Spandex a duty of care in applying professional skill and judgment in certifying in a fair and unbiased manner payment for the work it carried out so as to avoid causing Spandex pure economic loss. Now, the High Court dismissed the case and held that there was no duty of care. And on, on appeal, the Court of Appeal, and it was a five-man bench, or five, uh, sorry, a five-judge bench, which considered whether or not to impose such a duty of care. Actually, I, I, let me take that back. I'm, I'm not sure if it was a five-judge bench, but it was a full bench of the Court of Appeal at that time. And the court made two observations before setting up the test. Uh, the first was that there ought to be a single test determining the imposition of a duty of care in all claims arising out of negligence irrespective of the type of damage caused uh, and there was no justification for there to be a general exclusionary rule against the recovery of pure economic loss uh, and therefore there was no reason to adopt a different test for such cases the test then comprised two questions preceded by the threshold question of factual foreseeability. And the first question was, was there sufficient legal proximity between the claimant and the defendant for duty of care to arise? And if that question was answered in the affirmative, then a prima facie duty of care arose. And we move on to the second question, which was whether there were any policy considerations that would negate this prima facie duty. The Court of Appeal very candidly acknowledged that this was essentially the ANS test, but said that this was tempered with the added preliminary requirement of factual foreseeability. And the test was to be applied incrementally with reference to the facts of decided cases. But the absence of a factual precedent in analogous situations of proximity and/or policy considerations did not preclude the court from extending liability where it was just and fair to do so. Uh, let me turn very briefly to talk about three elements. The first is the threshold question of factual forcibility. And that essentially is a question of whether the defendant ought to have known that the claimant would suffer damage from the defendant's callousness. It was a fact as opposed to a legal And the first, first stage of the test was whether, whether there was proximity. This focused on the closeness of the relationship between the parties and the Court of Appeal adopted the analysis of Justice Dean in the Australian High Court in Sutherlandshire Council versus Heyman uh, as to what proximity encompassed, namely physical, circumstantial and causal proximity, as well as the twin criteria of voluntary assumption of responsibility and reliance. Turning to the second question of what amounted to policy considerations, this is clearly not a closed category, but the Court of Appeal did give some examples. Uh, The first was the presence of a contractual matrix, which clearly defined the rights and liabilities of the parties. Uh, A second example was the relative bargaining positions of the parties. And the third was if the court felt that the duty shouldn't be imposed, having weighed and balanced. Competing moral claims and broad social welfare goals. Uh, on the facts of spandex, the Court of Appeal found that the threshold question of factual foreseeability was satisfying because it found that it must have been foreseeable that the respondent, uh, to the respondent, that any negligence in the certification would directly deprive the contractor spandex of monies, which may have uh, led to financial difficulties if the correct amounts were not paid. The court rejected the respondent's argument that it was not foreseeable that the alleged under-certification led to spandex financial difficulties, which then led to uh, the contract having to be debated. The court drew a distinction between foreseeing loss and foreseeing the kind of loss, and, and it held that. Um, the issue of whether the particular type of loss uh, was recoverable was more properly dealt with on the issue of remoteness rather than in uh, deter- at the stage of determining whether a duty should be uh, imposed. The court held that the requirement of proximity was not satisfied because the respondent could not be said to have been employed to exercise due care because there was a contractual uh, provision in the Agreement between them, which allowed uh, Spandex to recover any underpayment or incorrect payment from the employer, which was the government, by way of an arbitration. And so, the court held that that had set out the rights in in respect of this issue, and it was not sufficiently proximate to impose a duty of care. Um, the court also found that there were cogent policy considerations why a duty of care should not be imposed. Spandex had freely entered into the contract had its rights adequately protected by that contract uh, and the court felt it was not just and reasonable to impose on uh, DSTA a duty which Spandex had chosen not to make a contractual one, especially given the arbitration clause which provided an adequate remedy in the event of Uh, under-certification. And in this respect, the Court of Appeal adopted the reasoning of Lord Justice Russell uh, in uh, the English Court of Appeal's decision, in Pacific Associates and Baxter. That remains the test in Singapore, and it's been applied in uh, different scenarios. However, the specific subsequent cases have suggested other factors which may uh, weigh in at the policy consideration stage, uh, and that includes whether the defendant had knowledge of the risk or harm, or the lack of such risk or harm, and the extent of the defendant's control uh, over premises. And this was a case involving occupiers liability, which has been brought under uh, negligence and and the same principles apply. There is the additional factor of vulnerability, which I know has been applied in in the UK and uh, as I understand it in Australia, Uh, but this has not been uh, considered in Singapore as yet. Um, so, Stephen, I'm going to stop there. Um, the test in Singapore is, is pretty settled. It's a test in spandex, uh, and that's been reiterated
0: several times
2: uh, in the years following that case. And it's pretty much ends, but right? Pretty much ends with a, a preliminary uh, consideration of a factual question. Yes. Okay. How different are we, at all,
1: Leanne,
3: in England?
4: Well, the law was quite settled in the UK until recently, but last year the UK Supreme Court restated the principles in relation to damages for negligent professional advice in two cases by the same seven-judge panel, and they were handed down at the same time. And the cases are Manchester Building Society against Grant Thornton and Meadows um, against Khan. A Manchester Building Society was an auditor's negligence case. Um, it arose out of advice given on the use of a particular form of accounting, hedge accounting, to implement a business model that the building society wished to implement with a view to matching the value of interest rate swaps against the value of mortgage loans. And the Supreme Court held that the auditors, Grant Thornton, were liable for the mark-to-market MTM losses on the interest interest rate swaps as a result of the advice, which had been incorrect, but also held that the building society had been overly ambitious in relation to its uh, business models application, so deducted the the damages by 50% for contributory negligence. So so the auditors were ultimately liable for 50% of the MTM losses. And it was interesting because the Supreme Court reversed the judge and reversed the Court of Appeal in relation to that, in finding that there was, in fact, liability for those damages on the part of the auditors. Meadows, on the other hand, was a clinical or medical negligence case arising out of negligent advice by a general family practitioner who had told the plaintiff, the claimant, that um, she was not a carrier of the haemophilia gene. And subsequently, she had a son who suffered from haemophilia, but also suffered from the unrelated condition of autism. And it was accepted that the defendant who had... Given the wrong information about the hemophilia, should pay for the costs associated with the child's hemophilia. Um, The question was whether the claimant could recover the costs associated with um, his autism. And the Supreme Court held that she could not. Those costs were not recoverable. And again, the judge had allowed the claim in full. Uh, The Court of Appeal had reversed it, and the Supreme Court upheld the Court of Appeal and so dismissed the appeal. So different decisions at different levels um, on on these facts. and Lord, Lord Hodge and Lord Sales, with whom Lord Reed, Lord Kitchen and Lady Black agreed, so five in the majority, took the opportunity to restate the law on the scope of the duty of care in the tort of negligence. And the minority agreed with the result, but differed in relation to their reasoning as to how they, they got there. Now, Manchester Building Society was um, a parallel duty in contract and tort, but that made no difference in terms of the principles to be applied. Meadows was, it wasn't private medical care, so it was purely um, a a tort claim, but that seemed to have no difference in relation to the the, the principles that were generally applicable. And what the majority were trying to do was formulate a general test that would apply across the board to personal injury cases, as well as uh, pure economic loss cases, And they came up with a six-stage test with various questions that have to be asked. So the first was the actionability question, is the harm, which is the subject matter of the claim, actionable in negligence? Then the scope of duty question, what are the risks against which the law imposes on the defendant a duty to take care? The breach question, did the defendant breach his or her duty by his or her act or omission? Then factual causation is the loss for which the claimant is seeking damages, but the consequence of the defendant's act or omission. Fifthly, was the duty nexus question, is there a sufficient nexus between a particular element of the harm for which the claimant seeks damages and the subject matter of the defendant's duty of care at stage two? And finally, the legal responsibility question, which wraps up questions of remoteness or novus actus interveniens, is it the effective cause, or has the claimant mitigated his or her loss? But it was the second and the fifth stages, which were the key ones, the scope of duty question and the duty nexus question. And those were interrelated. And effectively, they were saying that the fact that a defendant owes a duty to take reasonable care in carrying out his or her, it's activities does not mean that the duty extends to every kind of harm that might be suffered by the claimant as a result of that breach of duty and the key point that the majority in the supreme court focused on in relation to the scope of the duty of care assumed by the professional adviser was to look at the purpose of the duty judged on an objective basis by reference to the purpose for which the advice is being given Um, By so doing, the court was seeking to confine or limit the extent of the defendant's liability. And they said that starting with the general principle of tort law, that the purpose is to put the claimant back in the position uh, he, she, it would have been in. But for the defendant's negligence is the wrong starting point the court is having to distinguish between what, as a matter of fact, are the consequences of the defendant's act or um, omission, and what are the legally relevant consequences of the defendant's breach of duty. So you can have an act or omission, which, as a matter of fact, has consequences, but they don't give rise to liability and negligence because they're not within the scope of the duty of care. The Supreme Court also sought to dismantle Some of Lord Hoffman's approach in the Samco case, which was a negligent valuer's case where a lender had entered into a loan transaction in reliance on a negligent overvaluation of property and failed to recover the loss that flowed from the subsequent fall in the property market. And that was dismantled in two respects. One, there's no longer this rigid distinction between information and advice. That's now seen as a spectrum. So the advisor may have taken on the duty to to give advice on every aspect of a transaction, which is in prospect for a client, or may have simply agreed to provide one small part of the material on which the client relies in deciding how to act So there's no longer this, what is it, information or advice? It's a spectrum. And the counterfactual analysis, which was proposed by Lord Hoffman in in SAMCO, has been downgraded to a tool to cross-check the result, with it being noted that it's often misunderstood. And and that, that now assumes less importance. And just to briefly mention the minority reasoning, as I said, they agreed with the result, but Lord Burroughs slightly different from the majority because he saw no need to change what he saw as the conventional approach, which he then identified, in fact, as a seven stage test, but slightly differently formulated And he regarded it as unnecessary and unhelpful to advocate for what was, he said, a novel approach to the the tort of negligence, as was formulated by Lords Hodge and Sales. In particular, by not starting the analysis by looking at duty of care, they were starting with actionability. And they also differed as to where the location of the scope of duty issue should lie in the scheme, you know, the approach that you take. And he was also more focused on referring to policy as underpinning and being a part of the decision-making process, whereas the majority thought reference to policy would introduce the risk of uncertainty. So they were moving away from policy. Lord Burroughs saw it as still being there. And finally, Lord Leggett also differed from the majority, but he put considerably more emphasis on causation. And he saw the central question as being whether there was a sufficient causal relationship between what made the information or advice wrong and the so-called basic loss, which is the factually caused loss, such that legal causation was established. And in the Manchester Building Society case, for example, he considered there was a causal connection between the negligent advice and the closeout costs that had been incurred by the Building Society, because they were caused by the lack of an effective hedging relationship between the swaps and the lifetime mortgages, which Grant Thornton negligently failed to advise the the building society on. And he saw the duty nexus as as the same thing as causation, a causative connection between the duty and the harm. He also placed more emphasis on the SAMCO counterfactual test, so uh, less willing to downgrade that. So there were subtle differences between them. Those are the new developments in the UK. Given the divergence of reasoning, it seems unlikely that those cases will be the the last word. But there has been a significant shift in the approach in the law in England and Wales recently. So I'll hand over now to... Canagar, I think it is.
1: Before we go to Canagar, because I just want one specific point. When you talk about whether you should start with actionability or whether you should start with the duty of care question, I mean, isn't the actionability question ultimately the same as the duty of care question, or at least overlaps with the duty of care question?
4: It only overlaps with it, yes, Stephen. But, you know, it's bringing in issues such as is the type of damage, you know, more minimal. You know, is it sufficient that it's recognised in law? um in many cases that's not going to even be necessary to be asked but we had cases like where the pleural plaques on on lungs indicating exposure to asbestos was sufficient to amount to actionable damage and it was held that it wasn't so there will be contexts in which that will arise but but there is an overlap but they the majority would see um the scope of duty of questionnaire stage 2 rather than stage 1
1: okay well I must say it's not the most promising start we've got two closely related common law jurisdictions who adopt such different approaches to the question of uh, a common question where does australia stand on that canada
5: the trend will continue because we don't have a common approach with singapore they accepted that it was over ambitious to have a single test or even a six prong test or a two prong test as it is in singapore So now the approach that's taken in Australia as set by the high court is a multifactorial approach that's designed to focus on a number of salient features. That approach needs to be deployed only in circumstances where there isn't an established precedent. So for example, in particular categories of relationship, doctor-patient or lawyer-client, or valuer, lender, or financial advisor and client, it's accepted that a duty of care will arise in the ordinary circumstance. So the task for the pleader in those instances is to advert to that relationship and then to plead the relevant circumstances of the transaction. It's only in the case of a novel situation or a new uncategorized relationship, that you then use the multifactorial salient features approach. In a court of appeal decision from New South Wales, a a judge identified 17 of these factors. I, I won't run through all 17 of them, but identify a few of them to show that some of them at least have some similarities with the approach that's taken in Singapore or in England. So, for example, reasonable foresight is still used as a relevant matter for consideration. There's attention given to whether there was any assumption of responsibility by the relevant professional. There is still use of the idea of proximity or nearness in the sense that I suspect it might be the case that it's used in other jurisdictions. There's the question of reliance and whether the plaintiff relevantly relied upon the work of the professional. There's examination of the nature of the activity that's been undertaken and some analysis is given to the nature of avoidable action. But one of the things that is really of quite high significance is this idea of vulnerability that Siraj mentioned in the course of his presentation. And there the High Court seems to be focusing in on the capacity of a plaintiff to have avoided the loss, whether the plaintiff could be described as vulnerable in the sense of having no other means by which they could have protected themselves. that idea of vulnerability has its origin in a number of high court cases. But one of them that is particularly relevant is a decision called Woolcock Street Investments and CDG, PDYLTD, which concerned a claim against an engineering company. So there, the engineer designed uh, the foundation's of a warehouse and office complex in Queensland. And the original owner sold the property to a new purchaser. The new purchaser uh, discovered that there were some shifts in the foundation and damage was apparent. And in those circumstances, the new purchaser sued the engineer for compensation and asserted a... Duty of care, and the High Court took the view that there was no relevant duty of care in those circumstances, and some relevant matters that the court took into account was that the original owner undertaking the development had asserted control over the investigations that needed to be performed for the foundations. The engineer had recommended that there be a, a a technician, a soil technician appointed and, in fact, sought to engage one, but the company owner refused to pay for it. So the construction proceeded on the basis that that particular work was not to be undertaken. Then, when it came to the question of whether the purchaser could have protected itself, the High Court noted that there was evidence that the purchaser had not obtained a warranty, that the purchaser had not sought an assignment of the vendor's rights uh, against the engineer, and that the purchaser had not conducted a pre-purchase inspection. There was evidence that these things hadn't happened. And in that context, the High Court noted that it wasn't the case that the purchaser could be described as vulnerable in the sense of being unable to protect itself. And it's interesting how the court describes vulnerability as a claimant's inability to protect itself from the consequences of a defendant's want of reasonable care, either entirely or at least in a way which would cast the consequences of loss on the defendant. So that that is a relevant matter when it comes to considering the imposition of a duty in a novel circumstance, because sometimes the existence of a contract might well mean that there would be no relevant vulnerability and tell against the imposition of a duty. I'll give one other example uh, presently, and to demonstrate the type of approach that's taken uh, by the court in Australia. that This decision is Hunter Health District and McKenna, and it was dealing with the liability of a psychiatrist for uh, negligence. In 2004, a man called Stephen Rose became concerned about the mental health of his friend a man called William Pettigrove and asked, uh, arranged for Mr. Pettigrove to be taken to a, a hospital. Pettigrove w- was thereafter discharged from that hospital into Rose's custody to allow both of them to travel to a nearby state, Victoria, where Pettigrove's mother lived. During the drive, Pettigrove killed Rose and told police that he did so because he believed that Rose had killed him in a past life. Now, Rose's family claimed damages for psychiatric injury by nervous shock caused by the negligence of the health service and by the individual psychiatrist. And they were initially successful in the New South Wales Court of Appeal, but were unsuccessful in the High Court. The High Court held that the hospital and the psychiatrist did not owe the relatives a relevant duty of care. And the High Court focused in on what they perceived to be examples of difficulties in identifying the existence, nature and scope of a duty where you're dealing with, for example, criminal conduct of a third party or because of the existence of a particular statutory power or discretion that type of thinking where there is a close attention to the individual circumstances really bespeaks against any sort of two stage three stage or four stage or five stage approach and hence the the way that uh, analysis is undertaken when you come to plead a duty in a new circumstance is to consider various factors. In that particular case, the Mental Health Act required a psychiatrist to assess whether a person could be released or whether the only and best course was to keep that person in detention. The High Court said that that obligation or that duty cast upon the hospital and the psychiatrist was inconsistent with the imposition of a common law duty of care. And that's the reason why no duty was found. But uh, that's a demonstration of the type of approach that is often taken in cases of professional negligence in Australia. So I might stop there, Stephen.
1: Thank you, Kanika. Just one quick, I mean, on the question of vulnerability, what, what, why should vulnerability be such an important consideration in a case where you're asking, is a duty of care owed for the first time, when it plainly is an important consideration in cases where it's clear a duty of care is owed, I mean, no one in their right mind would think of arguing that uh, a driver didn't owe a duty of care to the pedestrian you run over because the pedestrian could have taken out personal accident insurance. I think you're frozen, so we're waiting until you unfreeze, and in the meantime, let's go over to Zal, and doubtless you'll tell
3: us that you're different still. Doubtlessly so, Stephen. First of all, uh, Stephen, thank you for that very flattering introduction and that valiant attempt to pronounce my last name. Which I know, terrible. Yeah, but it was it was a very bold attempt. Uh, so I laud your courage. Um, and thank you, Siraj, Leanne and Kanaga for your very informative and useful presentations. I'd like to quote Stephen to start with from an early judgment of the Calcutta High Court. This is what the single judge of the Calcutta High Court said in the year 1977. So we have to remember that uh, India was independent in 1947. And in 1977, this is what the judge of the Calcutta High Court said. And I quote, the basis of this branch of law, speaking about the law of tort, continues to remain the rules of English law, which we had been imported into India and became a part of Indian law. In India, the litigations in respect of tort are not many. The law of negligence, among all the torts, has been discussed the most by the superior courts in India. However, there still remains to be a clear statement of Indian law adopting the law of negligence into Indian law. Often, almost invariably, the concept of negligence is discussed in the context of other statutes, for example, consumer protection, criminal negligence, and other statutory duties which public authorities have. Indian law, therefore, is still to lay down a principled and cohesive body of law on negligence. Now, from what I said, it seems somewhat obvious that we make great strides. In the context of professional negligence. However, there is one area where the Supreme Court has made some progress, and that is the area concerning doctors and medical professionals. And this area has now been come to be, come to be known in India as the area of medical negligence. So it seems to be an exception to the rule, where the Supreme Court has now recognized the concept of medical negligence. And it has recognized that doctors owe a duty of care to their patients and will be liable. There were several early decisions which started the progression of the law. And generally, the watershed moment under Indian law is regarded as the judgment in Jacob Matthews' case. So this was a judgment of the Supreme Court, and it came to be passed in two thousand. I think it's once again important to note that from 1947 we waited till 2005 for this pronouncement on law. Now, Jacob Matthew, it was a case where one Mr. Sharma uh, died in hospital as a result of the hospital's failure to provide him oxygen. One of the doctors who was tending to him was Dr. Jacob Matthew. Mr. Sharma's son filed a criminal case against the doctors for criminal negligence. The doctors moved the High Court to quash the case, to have it set aside. The High Court declined, and that's how the matter eventually reached the Supreme Court. In the Supreme Supreme Court, the judge who delivered the judgment, who spoke for the Supreme Court, was one Justice Lahoti. And this is what Justice Lahoti said in 2005, before proceeding to make some findings in the case. Once again, you'll permit me to quote. He said this, with the awareness in society and people in general gathering consciousness about their rights, actions for damages in tort are on the increase. So it was a statement which recognized the fact that there are not many actions, but now the law is changing. There are an increase in the actions which we are seeing. Not only are civil suits filed, the availability of forums for grievance redress under the Consumer Protection Act. I'll make a few comments on the Consumer Protection Act a little later on. Having jurisdiction to hear complaints against professionals for deficiencies of services, which expression is very widely worded in the Act, has given rise to a large number of complaints against professionals, in particular against doctors being filed by persons feeling aggrieved. Criminal complaints. Are being filed against doctors alleging the commission of offenses punishable under the Indian government. Noted a progression in activity. In the area of have a in Calcutta in 1977 saying that we don't have any cases. And in 2005, we had Justice Lahoti in the Supreme Court saying that now we of people's rights, and we are seeing an increase in civil service. Uh, where people are filing for breach of duty. The judge then went on to analyze the English law of negligence. And he made a broad analysis where he discussed many of the leading English authorities. He took note of many of the leading commentaries. And he recognized the fact that, at least in England, there is an existence of the duty to take care. There is a standard of care which every professional has to achieve. And if he breaches that standard of care and his duty of care, then damages will ensue. Unfortunately, we don't have an express statement about how this is to be applied under Indian law. In the discussion of various aspects of tort law, there is no express statement about what exactly is to be the Indian test for negligence. The judge, however, did go on to specify that the standard of care which is to be expected of doctors and medical professionals is that which was laid down in the case of Boland in England, which is known as the Boland test, now in India. Now, the important thing to note, I think, is that the Boland test was laid down in the 1950s. And uh, the judgment of Boland is very, very short and pithy judgment. It is actually the judge delivering directions to the jury is summoning the law for the jury, where he does lay down some principle. and he does say that professionals must adhere to and must meet the standard which an ordinary professional would, is not supposed to be a great practitioner of his art, but he must at the very least. And, and this is to be assessed on the basis of evidence. So on and so forth, which can be taken in by the judge. So that's where we were after Jacob Matthew. There was a recognition of the fact that doctors and medical professionals would be guilty of medical negligence. And we do now have a standard, which was then laid down in 2005, which was the Bowling test. The judge also, in passing, made reference to other professionals. And we were left with the suggestion that. Uh, the principles which were laid down in the Jacob-Matthew judgment could be applied to other professionals. But really, there's no certainty in that matter. The judge summed up the conclusions, and in his summing up, he said two things which are really of relevance. The first is that he found that medical negligence is now entrenched in the law of India. And the second is that the standard that the doctors will be judged by is the test. Since Jacob Matthew in 2005, there have been several other judgments of the Supreme Court following Jacob Matthew's case. They have followed it, but they have moved away from the Bolum test, and they have moved in favor of the test in Bolito's case, which is a judgment which we have of the English courts, which seemed to suggest that in certain cases, the judge may not slavishly follow the expert opinions which you have, if it doesn't accord with his general sense of reasonableness uh, in the circumstances. But, but that is it. So that's where we are more or less with regard to medical negligence in India. We are at the rudimentary stages and we have the start of a recognition of the tort of medical negligence, and we have a standard, which is the bully test. So the question is what of other professionals? Most importantly, what of lawyers? And I think the answer to that remains uncertain. In early decisions concerning lawyers, the Supreme Court has suggested that they should be largely governed by the rules that govern them, and that the remedy for peace of purpose persons who are aggrieved would be to go to the Bar Council and to have disciplinary action against the lawyers. In a recent judgment of K. Narayan, there is a passing reference once again that has been made, which suggests that lawyers may be judged by the same standard as Jacob Matthew. It really leaves open several questions. What is the duty of care that lawyers would owe to their clients? What is the standard that the lawyers must achieve? It leaves open, obviously, questions with regard to remoteness, Questions with regard to causation, how would damages be assessed, so on and so forth. With regard to other professionals, it's a blank slate. So we don't have any law governing auditors, we don't have any law governing valuers, we don't have any law governing chartered accountants in the context of tort. Another interesting feature of the development of where we are is that most of these cases didn't actually start. As civil suits for a breach of a duty in tort. Many of them have actually started, just like Jacob Matthews started, as criminal cases. Some have started as cases under the Consumer Protection Act, which grants redressal to consumers against a deficiency of services. Doctors, incidentally, have now been recognized as providers of service under the Consumer Protection Act. Uh, Lawyers are under consideration. Uh, There is actually a appeal which is currently pending in the Supreme Court uh, considering this very question. Uh, I I must point out that the Supreme Court was very quick to stay the judgment of the tribunal which suggested that lawyers would be covered by the Consumer Protection Act. So, uh, well, the question remains open today. So I think in conclusion, we may summarize by saying that the law of tort has been developing slowly in India. The law of medical negligence now stands entrenched in India. We look forward to some clear statements from the higher judiciary with regard to the principles that will be applied, both in medical negligence and cases covering other professions. There is every hope that in the future, we will get some guidance from the higher courts with regard to these matters. So so that's the position in India today, Stephen.
1: Thank you. So no overarching principle of professional davis at all or professional liability. It's confined
3: to negligence doctors. Uh, Well, you seem to be correct, Stephen, and I would go further. It seems to me that there is no overarching duty of care in negligence at all, which is recognised under Indian law. So there is no, as I put it, no cohesive doctrine with regard right. to negligence, and for that matter, professional negligence.
1: It's a great place to be a professional.
3: Well, you, you said it. it. It might tempt us to take some chances, which the rest of you might not, yes. Okay.
1: Now, before I open up discussion, with some, some some general questions. Can I go back to the question I asked you at the end of your talk, Kanaga, before you, you, you froze? I don't know whether you heard the question or whether you want me to repeat it.
5: I think you are asking about how vulnerability fits into the circumstance of considering whether duty should arise. And I think the comments made by the High Court are directed to the instance where you have a, a relationship and it's possible that by particular steps that you might take in that relationship, you can protect yourself, but you chose not to. It's similar to the type of discussion I think that Siraj mentioned in the context of the Singapore Court of right. Appeals right. thinking, but insofar as a pedestrian is really not entering into a transaction with that negligent driver, he yeah. can't really protect himself in the same way that, for example, a purchaser of a building might be able to yeah, I see that
1: okay now it's a bit of a mess, isn't it really? I mean we've got four. Most common law jurisdictions adopting very different approaches to how you analyse whether someone should be held liable. And I think we need to park Zal for a bit because India is in a sort of different world from the world that the other three jurisdictions are in, but we'll come back to Zal later on. This particular question, I mean, we've got a number of tests that have been applied and are still being applied in jurisdictions. jurisdiction. We've got the ANS test, that basically Singapore has gone back to applying with one or two tweaks. We've had the Caparo three-stage test. We've had the incremental test. We've got the new approach in the Manchester Building Society case. Do they produce real differences in outcome, or are they simply different ways of analysing a way of getting essentially the same result based upon pure gut instinct of what the right answer should be? How different in outcome do the tests result?
5: I would suggest not, not much of a difference, really and i think that a, a court in australia would probably have come to the same conclusion in respect of the two cases that leanne spoke about in the supreme court
2: leanne
4: i thought what was quite interesting was the way different levels of court had arrived at different results in those cases and then the difference in the reasoning in the supreme court but they all arrived in the supreme court at the same result It was just how they got there, but the majority were were trying to, I think, focus on the scope of duty by reference to the purpose, because they regarded that as simpler, as more determinate, and as applicable from the outset of the relationship, whereas they felt Lord Leggett's causation approach, whilst it might lead to the same outcome... Potentially wouldn't. So there is a possibility that they don't actually end up in the same place. You know, in terms of even the different approaches in in English law, Lord Leggett didn't agree with that. He felt it was common ground that you needed to actually determine whether and to what extent the claimant's basic loss, the but for loss, was within the scope of the defendant's duty of care, whatever the approach. But it seems to me we've now got quite a complex conceptual framework, disagreement. As to what the steps are, whilst they're being overlapped, in, in what order do you take them? And therefore, you know, this, this does seem likely to be revisited again. Yes.
1: Siraj. If
4: before, you, one, one question I've got before you
1: before you, you answer that, I mean, pre spandic it seems to me the law in Singapore was particularly peculiar because you're applying the ANS test to cases of pure economic loss, although you say it's not really the ANS test, but effectively it's the same sort of way of looking at the, 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 the structure of the law. You apply the Caparo three-stage test to everything other than economic loss, and yet the Caparo three-stage test was itself a test developed for economic loss, and not for physical damage, for example.
2: So it, it was it was strange, and and I think that feeds back to what you said, which is really we're just looking at different ways of uh, arriving at what ultimately is the same destination. I think generally speaking, you are looking at a framework within which to set out um, or or to establish whether or not to impose liability. And then for want of a better word, uh, an adjustment mechanism, the policy or some of the other phrases that have been used um, to sort of treat things um, to, um, you know, to, to satisfy the, the fair and just requirement, but I do think that ultimately we do end up in, at the same place. Um, certainly, in uh, it, it, you know, it's interesting to bear in mind that in the High Court, uh, in Spandek itself, uh, the court essentially came to the same conclusion, uh, applying not the, the new test that the Court of Appeal or, or the 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 unified test at the Court of Appeal. Uh, came up with. But it came up with the same, uh, same outcome. Okay.
1: Let, let let me ask you another question, starting with you, Siraj, because it seems to me from the discussion we've had so far that Singapore is the jurisdiction that places most emphasis upon policy. I mean, a- although you articulated a number of specific considerations where the policy argued against the duty of care, for example, where there's a, a, a parallel contract, you had that rather open-ended category at the end about competing considerations. How how, how, how do the courts go about deciding what policy is? I mean, do do they take evidence on the question or do they pluck it out of the air?
2: So there is no clear answer to that, certainly from the courts. My sense is the the courts have given themselves or given parties the ability to say, look, this should be a, a policy consideration. What the court did say was, look, instead of... You know, going by a gut feel, come up and say, say, hey, you um, um whether, whether that that is, I, I don't think things think it's sort of plucked out of the air. But whether, whether or not you buy empirical evidence, uh, I think it's difficult to, uh, there isn't a clear answer to that. I think if you're trying to raise, uh, well, if there is a clear contractual provision, as there was in Spandex, then that's something that you can certainly raise, and and that's um, clearly in by way of evidence. But you know, it, the 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 famous phrase of floodgates. If that's what you're you're trying to turn to, then I think uh, the courts you you might have to to um, to back that up. Whether you're going to be able to back that up with empirical evidence, I think might uh, might be difficult because you're really looking you're really postulating as something that hasn't actually occurred. Um, so you're, you're going to have to try and convince the court that
1: there yeah. is that risk. I, mean, I, I, I was actually specifically thinking of floodgates, but I was also thinking also the extent to which sometimes you get references to professionals having becoming uninsurable if you have a duties of care imposed upon them to too wide a class of people. Again, I mean, I don't think anyone has ever had a case where you've actually had evidence upon the effect uh, on insurance premiums of a particular duty being imposed.
2: Do you have any yeah, and, and, and Sorry, carry on. I don't. Sorry, I, I just very quickly. I, I think, you know, claims uh, in professional negligence against auditors, engineers, lawyers, doctors are, are very well established here. Uh, and that concern about becoming uninsurable hasn't really arisen. Well, What would you say about that from an English law perspective, yeah?
4: I mean, I have two issues. I think the whole issue of policy it seems to now be up for grabs because the Supreme Court, the majority of the Supreme Court, are trying to move away from policy-based arguments. So the question of whether it's fair, just, and reasonable to impose a duty of care the third limb of Caparo just doesn't seem to feature in the same way. What the recent cases are looking at is not whether a duty is owed, but The scope of the duty. So, to what extent are you liable for the loss? Are you liable for all of it or only some of it? And why? So, there is still this desire to restrict liability to contain it. But, um, I mean, certainly, I think it is difficult to raise policy arguments or influence the court by policy, particularly floodgates, without having a basis for it. I mean, my experience practicing not just in professional liability, but also in insurance. Um, is that there? It would be very helpful if there was more empirical evidence about the availability and, and cost of insurance and the impact that that. M- expanding liability or contracting liability might have, because I think different professions are being affected differently. So solicitors and surveyors, there are minimum terms and it's quite heavily regulated to ensure insurance is available um, and that there are minimum levels of cover in the interests of their, their clients. But in other sectors, for example, financial advisors, it's becoming very difficult to get cover, particularly for large-scale liabilities like the payment protection insurance or pensions mis-selling and anything that may result in big consumer redress obligations. So that you know, it's less regulated and is potentially becoming a problem. Auditors, in the wake of financial collapses like BCCI, you know, there was talk about them going uninsured, going naked, you know, not having insurance because of the, the cost. And instead, what seems to have happened is there are extensive restrictions by a contract on, on who one is liable to with view and, and limitations of liability in terms of restricting you know, what you're liable for and relating it to your insurance cover, clinical negligence, medical negligence, again, a problem because it's paid out of public funds, at least in the UK. And that seems to influence the courts in terms of trying not to impose too great a liability because it will end up with the taxpayer paying. So I think there would be if there would be a benefit, but I'm not sure, having investigated in some of my cases, that there is that data out there as to you know, collated in a form that you could present to a court. It tends to be judicial instinct is driving a decision and you get swings in, you know, Hans and Merton being very broad, Caparo and Samco being more restrictive and arguably it's a bit more expansive again as of recently without that being driven by hard evidence. So I, I would welcome um, more evidence being available and produced to the courts. Well, anything to say on that, Gallagher?
5: Uh, only that public policy is a relevant factor when it comes to considering the imposition of a duty in australia and sometimes the manifestation of that policy might be in a piece of legislation which might impose a particular duty or obligation on the putative defendant and that that is taken into account as it was in that case involving the psychiatrist
2: right now, going back
1: to something you said a minute ago, Leanne, I mean, obviously, the extent you know, in a relational context where, where it's not a driver running somebody down the street, in a relational context where can kind of a distinction, obviously, the imposition in principle of a, of a wide duty of care that could have significant consequences to the defendant is not as problematic if you do allow the, the defendant to contract out of the, the potential liability. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you all to... To tell us the extent to which you are able to contract out of professional liability in the various
2: jurisdictions. Let's start with you, Siraj. So I can think of two statutes which might apply. The first is uh, Acta Unfair Contract Terms Act, um, and, and that prevents a party from excluding or limiting liability for death or personal injury uh, arising from negligence. Um, you can limit liability for other sorts of loss but that's subject to the requirement of reasonableness. And I think that's the same in the UK as well. There's also a Consumer Protection Fair Trading Act, uh, which contains provisions relating to um, false, the making of false or misleading claims or unfair practices, uh, and that you cannot contract out. Of. Um, so there are some statutory provisions which overlay the, the parties' contractual uh, relations and obligations. Right.
1: Now, obviously, being able to contract out in circumstances where you're not sure you're successful in contracting out is not much consolation. And it strikes me that the test of reasonableness is not particularly clear. How do you go about assessing reasonableness or predicting whether or not your limitation will be regarded as reasonable so
2: as to be successful? So there, there is some guidance uh, in the case law. Um, I, I, I must admit, I ha- I, it's been a while since I've looked at this particular area. Um, but there are cases which talk about um, factors that the courts look at in terms of reasonableness. But you're right; it, it is a gamble. There isn't a certainty on, on that front, but there is that uh, limited ability to to contract out of uh, liability. Yeah,
1: as, as well, Siraj. Singapore is very similar
4: it is under the unfair contract terms act and I think it's practically the the same um, there's also if it's a consumer contract, we would have the fairness requirement imposed by the Consumer Rights Act 2015, which would um, also be need to be taken into account. But it would be generally subject to reasonableness. There are a number of factors that one would take into account in assessing whether a limitation of liability is reasonable, such as the likely level of loss, the level of insurance cover, um, that's available to, you know, the, the, the professional, the, the defendant, any other resources available, the bargaining position of the parties, the client's knowledge of the, the limitation, the term, the practice of the profession generally, the fee being charged by the professional. So it is lo- lots of different factors, as you say, not very clear w- whether a court would reach the result that a particular limitation is reasonable or not. You can't exclude um, liability for, for fraud, dishonesty, or reckless disregard of professional obligations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really one is looking at not excluding uh, liability altogether but just trying to find some reasonable limitation probably you know proportionate to the level of insurance cover in in most cases as a guide for you know what what a court might be likely to find reasonable I mean if someone came to a specific
1: question like I've, I've got this particular contract and I'm I'm very worried about being wiped out I, I want to limit my my liability what shall I limit it to How comfortable or confident would you be that you could give advice that was reliable?
4: I don't think wholly confident. You know, I, I think one would need a significant level of insurance cover and try to restrict liability in accordance with that, so that there wasn't the risk of personal liability in the case of professionals like ourselves who are sole traders. I mean, obviously there are other ways. Yeah. You know, you you can incorporate to to also seek to to limit liability, but I think it's very difficult to be confident that ultimately such limitation would be upheld. You can. Just try to do the best you can to ensure that there is a a, a proper remedy in the event of a claim. But of course, if you've got the added
1: problem caused by the indemnity insurance being on a claims made basis. So if you actually specifically limit it to a specific sum, being the insurance you've got in a particular year, it may well be by the time the claims made. You haven't been able to get yeah. that insurance in the following year.
4: Yes, absolutely. You know, and the need to maintain cover year on year on year for as long as you may have a claim being presented, you know, obviously has its its own problem. And in the less regulated insurance markets, the ability to get that cover, to get it at a reasonable cost and not have exclusions, which is what one is seeing with financial professionals, that the insurers are imposing exclusions. When they know something's coming down the lines, you may not be able to get cover at all um, as as issues develop. So it, it's definitely a real issue.
1: Kanika, how is it dealt with in Australia?
5: There are some, some similarities. Uh, obviously, uh, there's no capacity to exclude for fraud. You've got to be conscious of your professional responsibilities and obligations, and there are some limits that work around that. But r- really, in Australia, th- there's a, another statutory provision that rather outflanks the capacity or your desire to exclude liability for negligence, and that is the prohibition against misleading or deceptive conduct. And despite the language that's used, that prohibition will apply in many instances of mere negligent behaviour because all it requires is that in trade or commerce, a statement is made that ends up being false or inaccurate and in those circumstances, you can sue for misleading or deceptive conduct. And when Siraj mentioned that there's a similar provision in Singapore, I'm not sure to what extent it's been used the way that it has in Australia, but that is really that a fundamental part of commercial litigation in Australia. Many cases will involve an allegation of misleading or deceptive conduct, and the statute cannot be excluded as a matter of public policy.
2: Right. Yeah. Just to answer Kanagas point uh, uh, on that or question on that, it's not been extremely widely used. Certainly not in a in a professional negligence situation. It's more to govern. Um, it's it's more consumer protection from unscrupulous traders. So that's that's really the focus of the of the act. Okay.
1: Let's let's turn back to you in your very special situation, Zhao, having a pretty limited law of professional negligence. Now, I mean, standing back, I I can see that in one sense, you can say that the medical profession is a special case that has a strong case for imposing a a duty of care that gives you a cause of action. Because typically, a doctor will cause personal injury or death by being negligent, whereas other professionals typically will be causing economic loss. And economic loss, as we know, gives rise to problems that requires Special set of taking control the extent to which the liability can come too late. But in principle, other professionals can, through their negligence, cause personal injury. I mean, an architect could build a house that collapses and kills the person who's inside at the time. I mean, would there be any prospects in Indian law for a person in those circumstances suing the architect for negligence?
3: Stephen, I, I have to say this: that the law is sort of at a developmental stage, and to my mind there is an urgent need for our Supreme Court to actually step in and give us some guidance with a variety of professionals. So I think the moment is actually ripe for a case to reach one of the appellate courts and hopefully the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court needs to clarify the situation and ought to say that the beginnings of the principle in Jacob Matthew should be set out, developed and extended to a variety of professionals. But um,
1: the, the trouble is it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Because the court can only be in a position to make a ruling on a point like that if someone brings a case that goes to the court. I mean, the strange thing is is there doesn't appear to be any appetite to bring claims to test the boundaries of the duty of care beyond professional medical conduct.
3: Well, well you are right uh, in that, Stephen. And uh, there are probably two or three factors to bear in mind. One is that the Indian courts are very overburdened with a variety of problems which they're trying to solve, point number one. The second is that there are alternative solutions under some of the Indian statutes, such as the Consumer Protection Act, uh, such as the criminal statutes, which do give some form of redressal to the people who are aggrieved by these actions of negligence. Is it an optimum solution? Obviously not. It's suboptimal. I do also believe that the problem with the delays of the Indian courts discourage people from bringing claims of a monetary nature, because were you to even succeed, if there's a long road ahead to actually recover the money which is awarded to you. So there are certain systemic disincentives against people filing such cases. Reflecting on the position in other jurisdictions, which are more developed than us, I think we may have an approach where we sort of take advantage of coming late to the party in one sense. I think that it is possible for our Supreme Court to adopt one of the tests in the other Commonwealth jurisdiction. There has been a great deal of discussion on all of them in the judgments without any clear statement of which is to be preferred and which is to form a part of Indian law. But as Justice Lahoti pointed out in 2005, there is an increased pressure that the Supreme Court must lay down the law in this respect. And I think that sooner or later, we will have some developments in that regard. Mm -hmm. The other option, of course, is you spoke of contracting out, but I think we should be contracting in. Many of the professional bodies should, in fact, insist that there are certain types of contracts which would protect the users of those professionals. The the law with regard to implied contract is also reasonably well settled in India. But why Mm -hmm. leave it to My suggestion would be that the Supreme Court should treat this as a gap in our law and do what it needs to to immediately fill it. And uh, perhaps we can consider a situation where contract at least steps in to solve some of these problems.
1: Okay, As we're we're almost coming to the end, let me put you on the spot, Zal. You've heard what Siraj has said about the Singapore approach. You've heard what Leanne said about the Eaganshaw approach. You've heard what Kanag said about the Australian approach.
3: If it was in your gift to lay down what the law of negligence was in India, which jurisdiction would you pick? I think that I'd like to preface what I say by repeating what you said, is that there is a question mark about whether courts are really reverse engineering the results, right? When they all sit and view a sort of case of negligence. We're all human beings at the end of the day, and they want to achieve a particular result. But if I were to choose a test, I think I would choose the English test. The reasons are I find it uh, intellectually the most rigorous. And I find the current way that the test is set out actually something which is quite understandable to the common man. Uh, There is a certain amount of overlap and there is a certain amount of interplay in the concepts. But if I was left to choose, I think it would be the House of Lords test for me. Okay, well,
1: there aren't any questions and answers, I'm told by my question and answer chat box. We've come to the end of our time anyway. So can I conclude by thanking each of our panelists for their interesting insights into what is on any view a very difficult area of the law. And I look forward to another Bathurst seminar in a year's time. Thank you very much for watching all those that have watched and stayed the course.
0: I hope you'll agree that was a stimulating discussion of a fascinating area of law, especially considering the differences between these four significant common law jurisdictions. I'm very grateful to our moderator, Stephen, and panellists, Leanne, Siraj, Zal, and Kanaga, for providing such interesting perspectives. A few hours after we recorded the webinar, we were able to welcome guests in person for the first time since 2019 to our Christopher Bathurst Reception and Prize Giving in Singapore, at which Stephen Moriarty, who you just heard, And Paul Neo, the Chief Operating Officer of the Singapore Academy of Law, presented the prize to this year's winner, Magdalene Ong, who's an associate at Wong Partnership in Singapore. Huge congratulations to Magdalene, who we look forward to welcoming to Chambers in London for her internship. Finally, thanks to the Singapore Academy of Law for all their assistance and to all those who contribute to and participate in the Christopher Bathurst Prize programme. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.